This morning, I'd like to ask you, have you ever, you ever worked alongside someone who, um, like especially, you know, maybe toward the middle or the end of the job, that person was acting as if the job were already done? You ever been around someone like that? Like you and maybe some others are still going like gangbusters, right? Because the job, the, the job isn't, in fact, actually done. Uh, there always seems to be, you know, one or two, maybe even a handful of people um, that are acting as if the job were finished. Uh, some of you, if I say 28 to 3, yeah, some of you know what that means, right? Several years ago, <laughs> what feels this year like many, many, many years ago, uh, the New England Patriots were in the Super Bowl, down 28 to 3, toward the end of the third quarter, right? Um, I think, I don't know how many would admit it, but I think that a team was acting, or began acting as if the trophy had already been awarded. But the truth was, there's still over 15 minutes left in the game, and many of you know the way that story ended. Um, the Patriots not only came back, but ended up winning the Super Bowl uh, and making history. Uh, today I want to talk about the reality that there's a job that is not done, and we can't act as if it were. We can't, as a, as a church, um, and if I could for a moment talk to those of you who would say I'm a Christian, we as Christians can't live our lives as if the job is already done. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 6. And um, this morning I'm just going to uh, read a verse or two, and then uh, we'll spend a little time kind of talking about and working through uh, the passage this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, the verses will also be up on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, you can turn there as well. Paul says, Now, brothers and sisters... I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. And the purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. Now, if you've been tracking along with us, you might have an idea of what Paul is talking about here, but for those of you maybe that are just kind of popping in here for the first time in a long time or the first time ever, um, this is a letter that we're reading from, an ancient letter written by Paul to a church, a church community, uh, not too dissimilar from ours. Uh, granted, it was a couple thousand years ago, so uh, certainly there would have been uh, some differences you'd notice between uh, the way they lived and did church and the way we live and do church, but there were also a tremendous amount of ways in which we are similar. And so we're learning from this ancient church uh, what it means to, to, to understand Areas of, you know, kind of blindsidedness and, and um, uh, areas of weakness that, that, that maybe need to be uncovered even in our church community so that we can, instead of just kind of wallowing in those things, we can move forward and more become the church that Jesus had envisioned. So, so Paul writes this letter which contains all manner of instruction, um, some elements of correction, 
uh, toward various things. And the, the, the one big thing here at the beginning of this letter that we've been talking about up until this point is this problem of division and contention and strife. Right? The people, um, they had been broken into factions. And, and what you had was a church full of people that, that probably didn't like each other very much. It was a church full of people that probably didn't have a very high regard for others that were outside of their little cliques or tribes, right? You can imagine if we were to take um, uh, all the people in this room right now and just sort of divide up into a number of groups, right? And and there were uh, maybe certain things that... uh, that were common among the people within that group. The idea of like taking what was common in that group and using that as leverage to look at people from other groups and think less of them. That's part of what was going on here. And so uh, now Paul's sort of bringing to a close this whole conversation about a lack of unity within the church. And so he says, uh, all of these things I've been talking about, he's used a number of analogies uh, that help us to understand what the church is supposed to be like. And he says, I did this for your benefit. Um, and, and then he, he, he refers to uh, this saying that we really don't know what it means. This saying, it says, nothing beyond what is written. Uh, and we could... We could try, in all sorts of ways, try to figure out exactly what is the meaning behind this saying, which might have amounted to something like a proverb, but the reality is we have lost connection um, to where we could really understand probably what it meant to the original readers. However, the latter part of verse 6 here, it, it, it is very clear the purpose, the purpose for why Paul has been instructing the church in this way um, and for why he has made these various applications for them to understand. And that purpose is, and let me read it again, that purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. Right? Here's where it all comes down to. Uh, my purpose, my intention for having written up to this point all that I have written to you is so that no one within your church community would be arrogant. Can you imagine a church full of people who somehow had managed to escape the problem of arrogance? Can you imagine what it would be like to go and be among a group of people who lacked a quality that we all despise seeing in other people, right? Arrogance is extremely unattractive. Arrogance is extremely off-putting. And some of us have a problem with arrogance. Some of us have varying degrees of problem with arrogance. Some of us have problems of arrogance in a particular area of our lives, while in other parts of our lives, we're not very arrogant. This word arrogant means to be puffed up. Um, It's a word that in our Bibles is exclusive to the Apostle Paul. Only Paul uses this Greek word to describe, sort of through analogy, this problem of pride. It's being puffed up. Um, 
Seven times he uses the word. Six of his uses are found in this letter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, To be puffed up uh, carries this idea of being inflated or overinflated. And overinflation, as many of you know, creates fragility. And when we're talking about it in a spiritual sense, overinflation, that is, a person who is puffed up is vulnerable to spiritual fragility. Like, think about a balloon that's been overinflated, right? If I had a bunch of balloons here, uh, one that wasn't full of air at all, like, I could probably pull and tug on that. I could trample over it with my feet and probably do very little, if any, harm to that balloon. If I had a balloon that was sort of uh, barely inflated or underinflated, there's a good chance that I could squeeze it and press it and step on it and it wouldn't pop, right? But how many of you know that when you take a balloon and you stretch it beyond its intended capacity, the point to where the skin of that balloon is on the brink of explosion, right, it demonstrates fragility. Uh, You inflate a tire uh, on a bicycle, and you get to beyond the point um, of the recommended pounds per square inch, right? And you just keep on going and keep on going and keep on going, and eventually that tube might start to become deformed. It might start to demonstrate areas of weakness. Um, Eventually, it's going to explode, right? Because overinflation causes fragility. And what Paul sees being demonstrated within the life and culture of this ancient church is arrogance. Which, while the church could be said to be kind of like sitting up here all proud, uh, proud of themselves, patting themselves on the back for what they had become, the reality is they were about to explode. Paul goes on, he says, with regard to this problem of being puffed up and arrogant, he asks these questions. Who makes you so superior? Right, that's one question. Who is it that makes you so superior? How has this superiority been assigned to you? He asks another question. What do you have that you didn't receive? And then a follow-up question to that, if in fact you did receive it, right? Which, of course, he's talking about all of the gifts that God had given to this church community. All of the grace that came down from God and just smothered this church in the goodness of God. He says, if in fact you did receive that grace, if you did receive that goodness, if you did receive those gifts, then why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? So now Paul's asking, like, where did this being puffed up even come from? What caused you to become so full of air? You know, there's a great lie that I think many of us have fallen prey to from time to time, and that's the lie that says, you did it. You did it. Um, 
Maybe you've probably heard the story of the scientists. They went to God, and they said, God, we have figured out how to create life, and so we don't need you anymore. And God said, oh, really? You created life. Yes, we created life. You created life like I created life. We created life like you created life, and we don't need you anymore. And so God says to the scientists, he's like, would you mind just demonstrating for me how you created life? And they said, we'd be more than happy to. And so they usher God into their laboratory, and they begin kind of assembling all of their things, right? And they had um, a bin full of dirt. And so the scientists, they started to take the dirt, and they started to mold and sculpt it into the form of a human. And while they were doing that, God all of a sudden interrupted and said, no, 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 no. Get your own dirt. What caused you to be so puffed up? What, what caused you to somehow disconnect from what you had been given? From the idea of what it means that grace and goodness that comes from God has been dispensed to you like a gift. See, gifts can inspire one of two things. They can inspire either pride or they can inspire gratitude. A gift inspires pride, and a person then begins to act as if, I did it. I deserve it. Uh, now, maybe none of us have ever done something like that when it comes to, you know, opening up a Christmas present or, you know, that kind of gift. But think about uh, outside the, the, the gifts that people wrap and give to you in honor or celebration of, say, your birthday or a holiday like Christmas. Um, let's talk about the gifts that we all have collectively in this room. Right, you, you, have, you, have, you have certain gifts. Uh, you have been given certain blessings. Right? There has been some degree of honor that has been ascribed to you. And the question is, well, what do we do with that? What is our understanding of both the source of those gifts and the reason for those gifts? Pride, when pride creeps in, pride gives me the sense or the idea that I did it. I think very commonly of the man or the woman that built something, that made something, maybe from very, very humble beginnings, created something like a company, a business, let's say, and grew that into something that employed hundreds and then maybe even thousands of individuals that became um, very, very well known, a household name for an entire country, or perhaps even the world. Uh, we read stories of such success, and we think about the person, the mind that was behind it, and oftentimes we fail to neglect that that person and that mind was created by God. And that God had, in his wisdom, 
assign certain gifts to that individual. And so you and I here as well in this room right now, we stand as, like we talked about last week, custodians, stewards of gifts that have been entrusted to us, blessings that have been given and entrusted to us. And will my pride allow me to possess the idea that I did it, that I made it, or that I deserve it? Gifts can also inspire gratitude, right? And gratitude carries with it the constant reminder that this was given to me. Not I did it. Not I made it. Not I deserve it. But that this was given to me. Andy Johnson Flint said, For out of God's infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. You and I, we need to be reminded that the blessings that we have been given, the grace that we have experienced, the riches of what God has entrusted into our lives, they come from God. Can you imagine if, uh, again, in a few moments, we're going to have communion together. Can you imagine if any of us walked up and received the cracker and the juice and held in our hearts the idea, I deserve this. Right, the very nature of the gospel reminds us that what God did for us, none of us deserves. None of us has ever deserved. None of us can do anything to merit or deserve what God has done for us. Paul goes on, he says, you are already full. So now Paul is going to leverage a little bit of irony. Um, some of you will detect a, a tone of sarcasm here. He says, you are already full. You are already rich. You have begun to reign as kings without us. And I wish you did reign so that we could also reign with you. See, what had happened in the church at Corinth is they began living as if they had already arrived. Um, some weeks from now, we're going to look and see how uh, it was, in fact, their incredible giftedness that allowed them to feel something about themselves that was very, very spiritually unhealthy, that contributed to this feeling of arrogance, this way about them, this culture that just permeated every fabric of who they were as a church. They lived like they had already arrived. Paul says, you are already full. <laughs> that is, they became full before their time. Getting back to the idea of arrogance being, like, puffed up. They were puffed up by their fullness, but their fullness was simply empty air. He said, you are already 
rich. That is, they became rich before their time. You see, what's happening here is they understood something that was true, but the problem was they embraced it before its time, much like the Falcons did in that Super Bowl against the Patriots, I think. Embracing the victory before the whistle blew. Paul says, you have begun to reign as kings without us. Their reign began before its time. Again, an understanding of some truth that is that Jesus introduced to the world a kingdom of which he would be king and lord of all. But the church in Corinth was guilty of a premature coronation. They had already begun to live in their triumphalism. But that triumph came before its time. Paul's proof of the premature way in which they'd sort of coronated themselves was the present reality that he and others like him were living in, right? He said, you have begun to reign without us. And then Paul says, sort of tongue-in-cheek, boy, I wish you were actually reigning. I wish we actually were in the time in which the people of God truly Reign, because then we would be reigning with you. But here then Paul says, but look at us. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place like men condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. Right? In contrast to the wealth and to the richness that the church in Corinth was enjoying as it sort of sat back and just allowed the feeling that the job was finished, the job was complete, there was nothing more to do but to enjoy the spoils of war. Meanwhile, Paul and other apostles and people like him, as he describes here, were like men condemned to die, a spectacle to the world. This word spectacle refers to what one might see at a theater. Many of you are familiar with what it was like in ancient Rome, and um, this this word could be used to describe uh, what might be the last parts of an event at the Colosseum, where people who were condemned to die would be thrust into the theater um, and suffer any number of different kinds of fates, whether it was fending off ferocious animals or um, engaging in acts of violence like gladiators until death determines the victor. Right? This is what Paul, this is how he likens his life to. He's, he's sort of like, those who were condemned to die, who were brought in at the end. It's also used to describe like when a general would return from a successful war or battle. The parade would go and um, 
toward the end there, the army would be followed by prisoners in chains that were dragged through the procession as a spectacle. And again, Paul says, this is the real state that we find ourselves in. Um, it's not one that looks like victory. It's not one that looks like a job that has been finished and completed. It does not look like one where we just get to sit back and enjoy all of what God has afforded to us. He says, we are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Um, I think there's, for us here, there's something that we can learn about perhaps the life cycle of a church or the life cycle that may be the story of a church, what seems to be the story at least of this church. You can imagine a church like this church in Corinth starts off well, right? Um, the, the, the ground is sort of, uh, as Paul and others like him come into this community, um, the ground has been prepared, right? Paul, he talked about how he planted seeds, right, that ultimately germinated, were watered, and then produced a harvest. And so something like a church is sort of born. And that church, that, that movement that begins, that thing, that work that um, sort of suddenly springs up, it oftentimes has a tendency to be very, very attractive. Right? There's a newness, a freshness to it. There's something different from um, all of the things in the world and going on in the world that have caused you and me to live with a lot of cynicism. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you feel like, you know, at this particular point in your life, you just, you've become pretty cynical, given all that you've seen, given all that you've experienced, right? But then all of a sudden, this fledgling movement begins, and Something like what we were talking about this morning, singing about this morning. There's hope. There's a hope that just sort of springs up. And there's excitement. Uh, you'll see this not only in probably what happened in Corinth and many of the other churches that Paul established, but we see this happening even in our world today, right? A new church, a new work starts. And it's, it's because it's new, it's, it's exciting. And so, you know, people that have been maybe going to their church for some time, that you know, the shine has long worn off, right? And they're barely even engaged with their own church community. All of a sudden, this other thing starts up, and there's all kinds of excitement. There's the unknown, right? There's the element of different and new. And, and so people are attracted. Um, a lot of times that movement, because it's not beleaguered with... Um, with a lot of bureaucracy, right? The, the church is, it's not very organized. And that lack of organization actually allows for a high degree of freedom for people to just kind of, to be and to do, and, right? And so um, that church can look like something like a force, <laughs> a force to be reckoned with in its community. Uh, the giftedness becomes... Uh, recognized, you know, over the course of time. 
And as a result of all of the, the growth and the blessing, uh, that church may eventually get to this place where, and I say this respectfully, it becomes fat and happy. Content with what it has become. It has gone from a kind of disorganization and chaos to something that is more like a well-oiled machine. And I'm not saying that it's not important to be organized. It's not important to have structure, right? Um, but what can happen, especially for such spiritual works, as a church that has enjoyed a high degree of success, there can come a point where the people become comfortable with what they've become. And they now take on the culture of what I would like to call the crowned church. The crowned church. This is the kind of church that exists in its own sense of triumph. The problem with this church is it's probably allowed pride to seep into and become part of its culture. Unfortunately, it will have a tendency to become very unattractive to the world because of its inevitable hypocrisy. Um, the crown church will oftentimes come off as hateful, as superior, as better than. There are sharp distinctions made between those who are in and those who are out, those who are us and those who are them. The cross is flown as a banner of victory and a sign of those who are morally superior to all others. You see, I believe that the Christian is right in that God has reserved honor for us, right? Paul uh, and others talk about the glory that we're going to ultimately share in, right? That there is glory and honor reserved for those who give up their lives for Christ. But the crowned church jumps onto and holds up that glory and honor before its proper time. See, the problem comes when the Christian falls into self-honor. That is, seeing themselves and their, let's say, um, they have improved their moral behavior. Um, or they have sp certain spiritual sacrifices that they can point to, and they use these as an excuse for self-congratulation, and now all of a sudden they start to see their Christianity as a product of what they have done, and that the blessings of God are those things that they have come to deserve. This is the crowned church. Then there's also, uh, in the life cycle for some churches, the possibility that it becomes something like the chameleon church. This is the kind of church that blends in with its environment too much. Uh, so much so that its differences from the world are essentially invisible, indiscernible. You can barely tell the difference between that spiritual community and any other kind of community that you might find in the world. This chameleon church 
becomes what it is over time. Uh, perhaps as a result of little movements away from Christ and away from the cross. If it's a liturgical church, right, uh, those churches that follow a, uh, a church liturgy, um, those churches may allow for their liturgy to just become an empty exercise. Or for those non-liturgical churches like we might be, the Word of God is diminished in its importance. And so over time, more and more of the world just creeps in. Like barely even detectable. But the church slowly moves away from being the sanctified body of Christ. The continued incarnation of God in our world. The light that Jesus has called us to be and the salt that Jesus has called, to be, called us to be. And the world just kind of creeps in more and more and more. And while such a church may do a really good job of connecting well with culture, it ends up becoming an entity that has little to offer culture that's much different or truly significant. There's little distinctiveness. Uh, it often it gets a pass within its community because it rarely holds any kind of beliefs that challenge the status quo. It doesn't really believe in anything too strongly that's going to get it into trouble. And so the cross for such a church is more like a faint symbol of a time that's gone by. And then there's the third kind of church, and this is what I'd like to call the cross-carrying church. The cross-carrying church is the kind of church that bears the marks of one that is carrying a cross. This is a church that lives in some degree of peril. It takes risks. And while it avoids taking on a savior complex like this idea that it's my job to save the world, it's my job to fix everything that's wrong, while avoiding that, it is still unapologetic in pointing others to a savior. It is unafraid to remind a hurting and dying world, wallowing in darkness, that there is hope that comes in our Savior, Jesus Christ. This kind of church, there's little room for pride because it carries with it what we describe, that old song, the old rugged cross. It carries the cross as the emblem of suffering and shame. And so Paul says, up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. Again, describing the condition that he finds himself in, one that is not something that you would ascribe to one who has triumphed, to one who has become victor, to one who has finished the job. He says, up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless when we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. Paul here, he borrows 
uh, something from the spiritual culture of nations that worshipped any number of gods. When he talks about how we have become scum and garbage. These two words are closely related to one another and carry the idea of something like that which is produced from a cleansing and then is thrown into the rubbish. You know, if you, uh, if you were to, to spray your tub with, you know, some of that fancy stuff that you let sit on there for a handful of minutes, right? And then you go and you kind of wipe away. What are you wiping away? The scum, right? The off-scourings, right? And what do you do with that? You don't use it as ingredients for your next holiday meal, right? Or you throw it away. It's, it's produced as a result of the cleaning, but it's ultimately discarded. And so it was in the pagan cultures that worshipped all these gods. Oftentimes, what they would do when they felt like they were out of sorts with their god or with their gods, they might offer something like a human sacrifice. And that human sacrifice would be prepped and made ready and the idea behind that sacrifice is that the sins of the community would be absolved. They'd be removed because of the sacrifice that they had made. And it had come to be that whoever was to become this sacrifice for a period of time, they might become very, very well treated, even while they were hold in utter contempt. And so you'd have uh, some of the what they would consider to be the dregs of society, people that were unimportant, people that were feeble, people that were perhaps infirm, people who were ranked very, very low in society. You'd actually see such people perhaps sometimes stepping up to become the sacrifice. And Paul says, this is what we're like. And what he's not saying is he's not saying that the work that we do is in some way the means by which a world is saved. He's not saying that by the way that I live my life, this is a way that another person can become a follower of Jesus. But there is a connection. There is a connection between the way a person who is following Jesus, who is willing to kind of step up, and while being despised in the eyes of the world, thought of as something like scum and garbage, such a person finds themselves in a position where God can work through them. And so here's the question. Was that just for Paul? When Paul talks about we are hungry while you're well fed, we are thirsty and you are well drunk, we are homeless and naked. When Paul begins describing the plight of what it was like to be a follower of Jesus, here's the question. Well, was that, was that just for Paul? Was that for Paul's day? Or is that for today? You know, I mean, like, there's a weird kind of disconnect that I feel even preaching such a thing while, you know, standing up here with my iPad. <laughs> you know, in a house of worship that's decorated so nicely. Um, that it has so many different things that are clear blessings. Well, is it for today a willingness to be like Paul?
to follow Jesus to that degree. And if it's for today, are we then willing to be that kind of Christian? Are we willing to become that kind of church? See, we are, I believe we are called to be in the world the way Jesus was in the world until our job is finished. What is our job? Well, it seems to me that our job is, it's quite simple. Jesus gave us a couple of very important pieces of instruction. Number one, he said, love one another, even as I have loved you. And so our question for us is, like, as a church, have we, have we actually arrived at that place where we could say we have come to love one another, even as Christ has loved us? Or would we say, yeah, that's not, that's not going to be a source of pride for me because we've got a long way to go and we've got a big job still ahead of us to do. And then, of course, Jesus also left those who followed him with the instructions to go into the world, to make disciples, to baptize people, to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, right? To help bring people into a relationship with Jesus where they can experience him as their Lord. Once again, the job isn't finished. Will we allow ourselves to be the kind of church that lives in our own coronation prior to its time? Will we live with a kind of pride and puffed upness that uh, just sort of betrays a church that has crowned itself? before its time? Will we, will we become the kind of church that will just simply acquiesce to the winds and change of culture, just kind of going along to get along while not really actually offering the world what it most desperately needs? Or will we see ourselves as those who have been given the opportunity to take up our cross and to follow Jesus? whatever that might mean, whatever sacrifice that might entail, whatever suffering that might call us into. Will we be that kind of church?